Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, J.J. Peterson. Hi, J.J. Hello, Don. How are you? Good. How are you? Okay, question for you. Go. What's the most nervous you've ever been? No, nervous isn't the right word. Yeah. Insecure is the right word. Wow. Getting up on stage in front of a group. Yeah. And what happened? I'm not nervous. Insecure. Like, I don't belong here. Yeah. Truthfully, so I've been in a lot of pretty big situations. Like, I spoke at the Hoosier Dome in Indianapolis. And, like, I've spoken in front of thousands of people. And truthfully, probably the most nervous I ever was was at an Easter presentation at church. (laughs) And I was supposed to read this passage. And they handed it to me about five minutes before I was supposed to walk on stage. And they just handed it to me. And I was like, what's happening? They're like, we need you to read this. And so I kind of glanced over it really quick and I realized it was very poorly written and I didn't understand some of it. And I walked up on stage and I started reading it. The words are in front of me and I've never had this happen before. My eyes kind of went blurry and I could not read the page and I froze. At church. At church, Easter Sunday, completely froze. How many people were in the audience? Hundreds. It wasn't like, it wasn't <laughs> like, still, you know, people you yeah, know. it wasn't one of those like thousands of, you know, stadium kind of crowds. Yeah. It was like few hundred people and I couldn't read it. And I was supposed to be introing, I think it was like a play that was coming up next. And I just stopped reading and then like said a prayer and walked off stage. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, <laughs> actually, like, you said the prayer out loud. Yep. I just stopped reading what was in front of me because I couldn't read it anymore. I literally couldn't read it anymore because my eyes were blurry then just closed my eyes prayed and walked off stage and I actually went and called my parents this was like this was a long time ago I called my parents because I was freaking out I was like this has never happened to me before I've never frozen on stage and ever since then I've actually been nervous every time I go on stage and I have to kind of know what's going on in the room and I have to be incredibly prepared and set up well because (laughs) I know that at any moment I could freeze because I've done it before. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and I love that you pulled the religious parachute. Like, it, like any yeah. sort of religious context, like, let's yeah. pray. Yeah, you know what? You know what? Let's pray. Yeah. Can, can you just close your eyes and bow your head? Especially heads if right like now? everybody's talking at a yep. party or something. You're like, hey, can we pray? And then Everybody that's the only way to get people to shut up. Other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can just see you reaching for the parachute. I'm going to pray now. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was. And to this day, and this was a long time ago, that's one of my most terrifying And you've never been back to Easter service again. Yeah, yeah exactly. I've never prayed <laughs> You're again. You just stay in bed all day. <laughs> you don't come back out. I was asked to, I have a friend named Julie. She was actually just here at the house. She and her uh-huh. husband, Matt, years ago, like 15 years ago, she got married. She asked me to read a passage of scripture in the wedding. Uh-huh. So she had four different people stand up in the audience at random times, unannounced, uh-huh. and read a passage of scripture. Yeah. But she used this translation called the message, so sort of like street language. Uh-huh. And you didn't say, you know, something like you'd say John 3.16. You didn't say that. You just read just the thing. Just started reading it. So I didn't realize. She gave me my piece of paper, and it said, are you listening? Are you really listening? That's it. That's uh-huh. my line. Uh-huh. So in the middle of the wedding, I stand up, <laughs> and I get everybody's attention in the audience. Uh-huh. And I say, are you listening? Are you really listening? And I'm convinced to this day half the people just didn't know (laughs) that you were were reading something prepared. That's right. (laughs) So years later, I get married because I got married so late. I was so tempted to give Julie some line like, excuse me, where's the bathroom? If you could just stand up. (laughs) And just say. (laughs) Are there refills on this particular cocktail? (laughs) 
<laughs> but I've spared her. And, and if she's listening, know. she should know that. Yeah, I spared her. You're the a kind, kind man. Today's podcast is an interview with Nancy Duarte. Yes. And many people just got very excited. Yeah, yeah. Because they know who Nancy is. I know I in did. In fact, Susie from our office demanded that she sit in on the interview because she's <laughs> such a fan yeah. of Nancy Duarte. Nancy has one of the biggest TED Talks ever. Yep. Where she actually takes Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, lays it over the top of Steve Jobs' iPhone release, yeah. his first iPhone release, and shows how they're the same speech. Yeah. So she discovered these patterns in communicating and gives you a formula, if you will, that if you use this formula to communicate, you'll get an audience's attention much better. Yeah. And they'll stay engaged. So it's very similar to story. In fact, she's a huge student of story. We get into it a little bit in the interview. But what I like about it is it's not just about giving a speech. It's about a few things. It's about always being prepared. Yep. You know, she talks about being prepared for that moment is very important. And the reason that I actually asked the question, what happened when you were insecure, is when I'm insecure, this may not happen to you, I talk about myself. Yeah. I defend my authority to be there on the stage. Yep. And it has never worked. Yeah. It has always backfired. In fact, you know, we just certified a bunch of StoryBrand guides. And yep. StoryBrand guides are the only people certified to give the StoryBrand keynote. Yeah. We actually give them the keynote. And one of them said, well, you know, that's fine for you, Don, because you're Don Miller. But if I get up there, I need to say why I should be up there. And I adamantly disagree. Yep. I said, no. If you're on the stage, somebody put you on the stage. And everybody in that audience assumes, without you defending yourself, that you're supposed to be there. Yeah. And you have some sort of authority. I don't even think you have to say your name. I mean, say it like 10 minutes in. Say, by the way, my name is Jason. Yeah. <laughs> but really, you want to walk to the center stage, you want to open with a problem. Mm -hmm. You know, here's a problem we're all dealing with. I'd like to talk about a solution. That's a story hook. Yeah. It gets everybody interested. But if you walk in, hey, my name is so-and-so, and I've been married such and such years, and... I see it over and over. Talks. Yeah. They'll do five minutes, and then they get the, the canned vulnerability. Yeah. You know, I went my bed till I was 12. <laughs> I like to pick my nose. <laughs> yes. You know, these sorts of things. Yeah. You're like, come on. Yeah. Why are you up there? Yeah. Right? Get to the point. Yep. Especially in a day and age where you have to do that fast. Yeah. And we teach people to do that with their brands, too. We talk right. about the sense Open of, like... Open with the problem. Well, and even just the confidence that you know what you're doing. And not to talk about yourself so much. No, Don't position backfires. yourself as the hero in the story. Because when you do that, people start to sense insecurity. They, they do. They and, sense weakness. And yep. they don't want weakness. They want strength. They want somebody who can help them be strong in their story. So when you speak about yourself and talk about your brand and make your brand the hero, it actually comes across as being very insecure. Yeah. The hero is the weak character in the story, yep. not the strong one. Very counterintuitive. Anyway, I love Nancy. She's been a friend for a very long time. She's one of the most generous, kind, thoughtful people. What she does is she takes leaders who have to give very important talks, and she helps them craft that talk in such a way that they can win over the audience. She's done it for, are you ready? A quarter million presentations. Wow. Yeah, wow. a quarter million. So if you have a talk that you have to give, this is a great one for you. The other challenge that I want to offer to the audience is I want you to give a public speech. Everybody Ooh. listening, mm -hmm. if everybody listening has to give a public speech, right now you're going to say, okay, who am I going to talk to and what am I going to talk about? Where's my opportunity to get up in public? And a lot of people are like, they're turning off the podcast right now. They're going yeah. to stop and they're like, I'm not doing that. But yeah. listen from that perspective. Like before you listen to this interview, think, okay, I've got to give a public speech and what am I going to talk about? Where am I going to give it? And then Nancy's going to give you some confidence. And this even to applies to 
when you're giving toasts, when you're giving, because I used to teach public speaking at a couple different universities. You've done everything. I live <laughs> it. And their final, what I would do for their final, because finals are usually about the three hour block, you know, they're not your normal. And most of mine would be around lunchtime. So I would take my class to a pizza parlor and we would order garlic knots and mozzarella sticks. And for their final, they had to stand up in the middle of the restaurant and give, I think it was a two minute speech. And there was certain criteria that they had like kind of, but it incorporated all the elements of things we had taught. And part of what I taught them was brevity. And so I said (laughs) in two minutes and you have to make this up on the spot and you have to go from these are the things. And so I would make them stand up in a pizza parlor and give a speech. I mean, that makes me nervous just and yeah. I'm a public speaker. But you could even do that. Even if you're not like yeah, giving a presentation, practice standing up even in public at a restaurant and give a speech to your table. My favorite <laughs> horrible speeches yeah. are best man toast oh, the at worst. wedding. They're they are the worst. awful. Yeah. Because inevitably you have a 21-year-old well. <laughs> who's never spoken in public. Yeah. They make the same mistake every time. They stand up and they tell inside stories that nobody in yep. that room understands. Yep. The very first thing Nancy says is think about your audience from yeah. your audience's perspective. So you stand up, you say, you know, uh, Jason, let me just say country concert, country concert, you know, <laughs> Dixie Cups, <laughs> come on. How many can you stack, yes, right? I've seen I mean, that this guy, this guy stacks so many Dixie cups on top of each other, and the audience is just going, "What in I God's know. name is that I young have man seen talking that speech about?" So many times, <laughs> I love them. I mean, literally, my wife and I uh, hold hands in anticipation because <laughs> we're about to watch a shipwreck, and then he gets nobody's laughing, no. so he gets nervous, and then it's the death and it gets spiral. Worse. Then they start cussing, and then they get dirty. Right, they do, and they then... do some cussing, <laughs> yeah, and then you just watch it, and then of course they want to dig themselves out, so they uh, go longer. Yeah, Ugh. it's beautiful. It's very predictable we went to a wedding actually you know it was jeff venable's wedding a friend of ours and the best man speech was very very good and i can't tell you how disappointed i was (laughs) i didn't get dressed for this i got dressed for a great wedding and a bad speech that's a letdown yeah but it was a very good speech whoever that was you did a good job okay well let's get to nancy duarte she has no help for jeff's best man but everybody other best man she's gonna help you out And I love Nancy, again, just a wonderful, wonderful human being. Here's my conversation with Nancy Duarte. Nancy, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I I confess, I'm a fan. I know we've met, and you would probably consider us acquaintances slash friends, but I'm still a fan. I'm just a geeky fan. (laughs) Is that okay? You're my acquaintance fan, too. <laughs> <laughs> I told you. I When I read, is it A Thousand Miles? A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. Million I remember, miles, yeah. A thousand, oh, God. I cried. I loved you. I hated you. I cried. Tears were dripping <laughs> down my chin on an airplane. <laughs> it was great. I loved it. Well, I also confess, I've told a million people, because we have a seven-part framework, and one of the things in our framework is don't play the hero in the story, be the guide. And I've said, Nancy Duarte gave me that. Listen to Nancy's TED Talk. And now people are starting to say, I just love your thing about not being here. I'm like, well, it's Nancy Duarte's. So let me just officially (laughs) say it's in the book and it's on the podcast. I'm talking to the creator of that. And at some point, you're probably just going to be able to sue me. But we'll see. (laughs) I just want this on the record for the courts to listen to my voice here in 2017. It's not mine. It's Nancy's. Just pay me a royalty. <laughs> just write me a check every month, and you could use it all you want. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we'll try to just send you as much business as possible here. You've got a book. Well, you got a bunch of books, but you're known as the person in the world to go to 
If you've got an important presentation and it matters, you know, you're joining companies, you're running for Congress, whatever it is, you're the person to go to to help craft that presentation so you don't screw it up. Is that fair to say? (laughs) Yes, I would say that we have written, visualized, and helped people deliver some of the greatest talks. And I read somewhere, it's like, am I exaggerating? A quarter of a million presentations, 250,000? Yeah, that statistic was not made by me because I love to stretch data, so I made someone else figure it out. And that statistic's <laughs> about eight years old, so I don't even know, Don. Well, in eight years, you've you got to be pushing half a million now. I'm not going to make that claim until someone checked my math, but yeah, I, I would say we've done a lot. Well, that's amazing. And your Harvard Business Review's Guide to Persuasive Presentations is the best-selling, as far as I know, Harvard Business Review Guide, period. And it's called HBR Guide to Persuasive Presentations. I'm holding it in my hand. It's a nice, thick, though readable book that tells you how to give a good presentation. Yeah, they were cool. They were like, hey, could you write a book? It's due in three months. It's about (laughs) if your boss broke their leg and you had to fill in for their talk, what's the book you'd grab? I'm like, first of all, you're not going to kill it. (laughs) I mean, I give you some tips, but, you know, anyway, it was fun. I really enjoyed working with them. On the back cover, uh, you know, has your boss broken his leg and do you have to give a presentation? Yeah. That would sell it. Anyway, you're out in Silicon Valley, and how many people are on your staff now helping people give great presentations? We have 120 people, and then we have about 60 contractors. Yeah, we have a good time. About 30% of our revenue is from training, and then the rest is from services. So we'll either do it for you, or we will teach you how to kill your own next talk. That's awesome. It's fun. I want to talk about how to give a good presentation, because we've all heard very bad ones. First of all, you're not just helping people give good presentations. You're helping people not be bored to death at listening to bad presentations. And in the age of the TED Talk, oh, Nancy, I've got this buddy who I love dearly. He was chosen to give a TED Talk here in Nashville. He was freaking out because people are, when they get a TED Talk opportunity, they're considering it, you know, the greatest opportunity of their lives. It's pretty and they high stakes. Yeah. They're treating it like a book. They're treating it like writing yeah. a book. Actually, it's as big of a deal because you can get more lift from that than even some book deals. If you've not seen Nancy's TED Talk, she lays Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech over Steve Jobs' Apple iPhone release, the first Apple iPhone, and shows how essentially they're the same talk. It's a fascinating talk. And that kind of launched you, didn't it? The talk did real well um, yeah. on all the channels. It's had almost 2 million views. So anything amazing. that gets that kind of impressions is fun. And that was based on my book, Resonate, which Resonate was one of those books where it just felt like the angels sang. And I made this discovery that I'm not a rhetorician, but nobody had ever seen this pattern yeah. of the structure of great speeches. Yet I knew they had this building of tension and releasing it just like storytelling has. And I came across the structure and was just like baffled by it. It wasn't the original direction that book was supposed to go, but wow, I have loved that little kind of revelation, if you want to call it that, has really rocked a lot of lives and changed (laughs) a lot of careers, made a lot of people billions of dollars. Like it's really effective. It's a persuasive story pattern that's really effective. I love the book. And if you haven't seen the book, I'm actually holding that book now in my hand. And it's almost like a coffee table book. Super easy to read, very visual, and it will really help you with your slides. But anyway, I want to get into, there's 40,000 business leaders listening to this. They all have to give presentations of some sort, whether it's opening up team meetings or actual presentations on a stage or elevator pitches. I want to get into some of the basics of how to give a good presentation. And you start by talking about the problem. And the problem is we are in a first draft culture and we don't take the time to make better presentations. Everybody's saying just ship it. 
Don't take second, third, or fourth pass. Although a lot of people would say just ship it when it's good to defend that position. Like read your tweet before you hit tweet. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I think what happens is because we're under pressure all day long and under deadlines. I mean, there are some presentations you could do quite a bit more loosely, like you know, basically think through the structure and go in and deliver your staff meeting or your project update. But when it's really high stakes and you really need people to move and coalesce in mass in a direction, it takes more time than you would think. Like even the guy who really understands that his TED Talk's high stakes, you do put a little bit more energy and you need to. And what tends to happen is we just take the first draft of anything and we shouldn't. A lot of times we open up a presentation software and we just start to create linear slides, you know, and in reality, it is much more of a collaborative process. So a lot of roles, they're building analytical work all day. They're drafting reports or doing research. But to create a really good presentation, it's a completely different mindset. It's actually a creative task. So I actually encourage people to change their environment and go somewhere else to write their talk just so they don't go into their old way of thinking, their old modality of working, and that they actually really take it on and craft it out like it's a creative project. And then collaborate, collaborate with others and get their feedback around how the audience might resist because we have our own mindsets. We have our own way of looking at it. And if you collect mindsets, even though someone will say something ridiculous, some ridiculous way someone might resist, you know what? Someone might resist that way. <laughs> it's crazy. I do think it's important to craft and recraft and finesse a talk when you have to get it right, when the stakes are high. It reminds me, there's times when I have to give a really good talk or something, and I'll rely on the fact that, well, I've given it a bunch of times before. And instead of actually sitting down saying, wait, no, who is this audience? It comes back for me to that Stephen Pressfield idea of when there's something really important, there's this enemy that makes you not want to do it. I love that. Isn't that so true? It's like, no, yeah. you know, I got to sit down. I got to redo this. What do you say to somebody who says, I'll never be a good presenter? I just don't have it. You know what? I think it's they don't want to put the energy into it because I've seen scientists shake in their boots and kill it, you know, and it takes work. And I think a lot of people will use that as an excuse. What's interesting is my husband, you have to drag him to get him to talk. But once he has a talk and it's scheduled, he's so elegant and eloquent and prepared. I think the people who are willing to just run up on stage unprepared are the scarier ones because they just will take up the audience's time. They'll ramble. They won't prepare. It'll be just awful. But when you can get one of those guys or gals that's really scared, they prepare and they will not waste your time and they will be succinct and they will be clear and it'll be lovely. So I just think it's getting over fear and then actually making the commitment to do it. Well, and the commitment to do it ties into your next idea that you've become so known for. And it's such a relieving idea, and that is that there is actually a mathematical formula you can follow to give a good presentation. There's a path worn through the human brain that if you camp your presentation along that path or walk that path, people are going to get it. They're going to lean in and they're going to listen to you. Is, is that true? Would you call it a mathematical formula? It is. You know, it's funny. Somebody keeps changing my Wikipedia entry saying I have a math major. And I would say <laughs> if I had majored in something, I wish it was math because I, I love statistics. I love analyzing words and seeing if they create patterns. So I went on a 
three and a half year journey through storytelling and really wanted to understand there's so much power in the spoken word, Don, you know this. I mean, so much gets created. The invisible becomes real because someone has the guts to speak it out loud. There's not any movement you can point to in history that didn't start with an impassioned plea from someone's mouth where he got everybody riled up and excited to change something. Well, presentations are the spoken word, like we're spoken word experts. And it's just crazy how much analysis hasn't happened around what were the words that were spoken that were effective and do they follow a pattern? And I would not have found this pattern if I hadn't spent three and a half years just a consumer and a student of story, storytelling, story structures in cinema and literature. Were you reading Robert McKee and Blake Snyder and Christopher Booker? All those guys. My favorite, by far, obviously, would be Joseph Campbell. But there's a derivative of his work by a gay named Chris Vogler. And Chris was a Disney analyst who fell in love with Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey. So he took the 18-part Hero's Journey, made it into 12 parts. And his work, I think, is the finest. So yeah, it was intense. And then I looked at Eastern story structures, Western story structures. What is it that builds tension? How do you create that cathartic release. And I knew speeches did it, but I also knew speeches aren't in the form of a story. There's not a single protagonist in the I Have a Dream speech, but yet it did have that rhythm and cadence and emotional building of tension and releasing it. And so after I studied story through three and a half years, it was like every morning from 5.30 a.m. until noon, I just consumed. I read the internet, Don. I like read the whole internet and about a hundred books. <laughs> My goodness. And so that's when I discovered this pattern, this structure that the greatest speeches kind of borrowed from story principles. It's almost like borrowing from chords to create a different kind of music. It's similar. There's noise and there's clutter and then there's music. And story is the way that the brain works. And people even wrongly categorize reality into story when reality didn't necessarily fit that, but the only way your brain can really process it if you go, well, that guy's an enemy and this guy's a good guy. And in some ways, it hinders our ability to think in a nuanced way. In other ways, it helps people actually understand an issue. It, it can work both ways. It's a framework. It's a framework that our brain, it's a three-part framework. I love that you brought up music because the sonata form is the same thing. It's a three-act structure, and it's a form just like this structure that I uncovered, but if you were to listen to a Beethoven sonata versus a Mozart sonata, very different expressions, yet they follow the same structure. So it's a beautiful way to communicate so that your audience can actually see what you're saying and they can actually have desire to go in the direction you're wanting them to go. And that's a powerful tool. I want to get into the seven keys to becoming a persuasive presenter, which you talk about in the HBR guide. But can you tell us just the three-act structure that you like to point to? Yeah, so it goes all the way back to Aristotle in uh, his book Poetics. But basically, there's three acts. The beginning of any first act is that you establish your hero as likable yet flawed. And this likable hero, you want to fall in love with them because then when they get to the second act of the messy middle, you're going to root for them because they've pulled on your heart in some way. The second act is this terrible, messy metal, and it's got roadblocks and hardships and unexpected turns and twists to it, and your protagonist has to overcome obstacles. And then when they get to the third act, they actually are changed and transformed 
by how tough that middle part of the story was. Well, between the beginning and the middle, there's a turning point. Between the middle and the end, there's a turning point. That first turning point between the beginning and the middle, and the beginning's usually pretty short to a story, that's usually where the mentor appears. And a mentor in myths and movies helps the hero get unstuck or brings a magical gift or a special tool. And they wind up needing that to get through the middle of the story. And yeah, I had a great journey through storytelling. And then my last book, Illuminate, is using story to lead. And that's where we pulled in uh, all the research we did on an epic length tale, which is different than an anecdote. And that's how a company, say, can be an epic length tale for 100 years as they drive people toward a new future over and over and over. Do you analyze the way I do? Do you analyze leaders? Do you analyze politicians and folks through these lenses? I do. You know, I get that question a lot because especially when it's a bad presentation, if I'm in the audience, people will just swarm up to me. And, you know, I I have to turn that part of my brain off. But audiences, that's the problem. They don't tolerate it anymore. You can make all the excuses you want that your presentation was crappy, but they've seen hundreds of TED Talks now, so they know what a good presentation is. So it used to be we never knew, right? Before Steve Jobs or Inconvenient Truth became big deals, people just thought every presentation was just really, really bad. But now people know that there are good presentations. And the only difference between a bad one and a good one is how much energy the speaker put into it. So you're asking the audience to waste an hour of their time just because you didn't put enough energy into it to make it of interest is not being very audience centric. The difference between an inconvenient truth and an inconvenient sequel, one worked extremely well for me and an inconvenient sequel did not. And I don't even think it did well at the box office. You talk about like we didn't sign the Paris Climate Accord. That movie was set up to be a blockbuster hit. And then I went and saw it, and I said, this movie's going to bomb. And the main reason from my perspective is he positioned himself as the hero in the story. Where we would always say, as you say, position yourself as the mentor. We call it the guide. Position yourself as the guide in the story. And it felt like, now this is you know maybe a little bit of a mean thing to say, but it felt like Al Gore was saying, hey, look, don't forget I started all this, and I get the credit for it. And I thought, well, that's not the point. That shouldn't be the point of the movie. The point of the movie should be celebrate all the world has done and say, hey, we haven't put the ball in the end zone yet. You still have a chance to be heroic here and help us get this ball in the end zone. So the good news is I didn't have anything to do with the sequel. That explains Um, everything. (laughs) That explains everything. (laughs) Al Gore, why didn't you call the person who got you there the first time? (laughs) We actually worked with him five years before it was a movie. And my biggest business failure is... You didn't get a piece. No, yeah, yeah. So kind of. No, no, we do not have a little trophy. No, what happened was we'd worked with him for five years, helped kind of create the groundswell, and then it was going to be a movie. You know, we'd already made some sacrifice, but, you know, he was a paid customer. He was lovely gracious customer. Yeah, yeah. And then the <laughs> people producing the movie who happened to be billionaires were like, um, hey, could you give us this ten thousand extra dollars of free work? And I was like, we're kind of tired. You know, we're just kind of tired. And we were like, well, no, not really. No, really, if you put this $10,000 in, we'll, we'll put your name in every single press release. And I was like, mm, no. Mm-mm. I said, uh, pay us. This. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, who's going to see a movie about grand. a slideshow? Pay us the $10,000. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, I could have had our name in every single press that's the, release. That's the deal you should have struck with the second movie. You got to get your name <laughs> off of that. Anyway, but it, it's amazing how he didn't know that. He didn't know that hey, it's really about the audience. It's about the audience. It's about the audience. It's not about you. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how you can spend eight minutes with you without realizing that because that's something you inherently believe. But 
over and over, Jeb Bush, God bless him, he was my guy. I wanted him to be president, but he thought he had to go introduce himself to America, and he didn't. He had to invite America into a story, and he didn't do that. Anyway, it's fascinating, but I think you could do a lot more than just help people give great presentations. I think you could be a good therapist for leaders. Just (laughs) let them lay down on your couch and say, listen, buddy, it ain't about you. It ain't about you. Yeah, go. I could say your... that to my in-laws. I could say that to my children. <laughs> I could say well, that to a lot of people. Your in-laws are listening. You just did. <laughs> All right. So let's stop digging ourselves into holes here. Let's start getting into how this is not about us, Nancy. This is about the audience. Uh, how can we help them become better persuasive presenters? The first point is should be the obvious. Know your audience and build empathy. Can you elaborate on that? So often it's like, oh my gosh, I have a talk. I got to go prepare my talk. I, I'm going to go collect my information. I'm going to go proclaim my information. And we forget that we need to take a moment. And, you know, storytelling so well. There's this moment in storytelling where the protagonist puts on the skin of their enemy. Like an avatar, he became blue. And suddenly he realized, these people aren't bad. They're good people. And I think what we need to do is put on the skin of our audience for a minute. Like, put it on, look at the world through their eyes and understand, oh my gosh, my presentation is going to ask them to work longer. Oh my gosh, that means they're away from their family or oh my gosh, I'm asking them to take a pay cut or like whatever it is. Oh my God, I just laid off their best friend. <laughs> like whatever or it I'm is. Or I'm telling them they've done everything wrong. Yeah, or telling them that their planet is melting or whatever. Right. Yeah. You have to put on their skin and take a moment and say, how are they going to process this? And how do I comfort or encourage them in the process I'm asking them? How do I walk with them in this process so they know that I'm here for them? And you've got to do that through empathy. And then number two, we get to where a lot of people would start, right? The message, develop persuasive Mm -hmm. content. And obviously that's a huge thing. Give us some tips on developing persuasive content. I think the biggest thing is that we think because we're in business and we're in a business setting that people don't feel. So I think we're really good at thinking through, oh, here's the structure, here's the idea. Sometimes people start with a topic and I would challenge people to say, no, you need to start with a big idea. And a big idea includes what is the journey I'm taking the audience on? So you have to say, hmm, where am I moving this audience from and where am I moving them to? So what is their transformation going to be like? And then how do I create all the right supporting information to support that transformation. What's interesting is I think in business we're really good at structure and oh, make sure you make three points about everything and make sure it is organized. Well, we're good at organizing structures, but we forget that we need to go back and add a layer of emotional appeal. Now, if you're talking to biotech engineers, you're not going to have it be 50% jokes and guffaw and all that. Just a thin layer of emotional appeal really transforms an audience. And if you're talking to a sales organization, man, you could lay it on really heavy. They love that stuff. So you just, you need to do an extra creative pass at how to have really striking and sticky concepts. Do all the organizing you want and structuring, but it really is the sticky concepts, the -the out-of-the-box thinking, the way it's conveyed, and your word choices can be so beautiful and create so much appeal that you have to fully work on the message. I'll be back in a moment with the rest of my interview with Nancy Duarte. Time for everybody's favorite segment on the Building a Story Brand podcast. The co-host people love more than JJ. It's Kula Callahan and her Wonder Woman pose. (laughs) Kula, what is today's myth? Today's myth is this. You are not in the feelings business. 
But you're not in the feelings business unless you're in the feelings business. You're, if you're selling that's not plumbing, right. are you telling me a guy who sells plumbing equipment is actually selling feelings? He a hundred percent is selling feelings. You're men gonna have all, to explain. Men all over the place, hearts are breaking. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I mean by everyone is actually in the feelings business, regardless of what you sell and regardless of what external need your business solves for your customers. People, they have an external problem, right? They go looking for something to solve that problem. But what they're actually really looking for more than a solution to an external problem is a resolution to an internal frustration that the external problem is making them feel. I see what you're saying. You're slowly winning me over. You're saying that people are actually not motivated to solve physical problems, really. It's what those problems, the frustrations that those problems are causing that they want to resolve. Totally. That's exactly That's what I'm the saying. motivator. And if you think about it, right, if your brand story is about your customer, your customer is a human mm. being, all human beings have feelings, they shockingly do. enough. <laughs> right. Unless you are marketing to cats <laughs> who don't have feelings. Cat lovers all over the world are hating you right now. They actually don't. Dogs <laughs> have a limbic system. Cats don't. They're just, they just want to kill you. But they're not big enough. So here's what I mean by that. Even if you're selling plumbing equipment, right? The external problem is that I need plumbing equipment, right? right. Something's broken. But internally, I am so frustrated. Because these old pipes, and I'm going to have to replace them probably. And people are coming over tonight, and they're not going to have any more. Like, Nobody all... can flush the toilet <laughs> at so the dinner party. Totally. And it's all this like internal stress and frustration and conflict that I'm dealing with. So while I do want to solve the external problem, what I'm more motivated to resolve is what that's making me feel on the inside. Okay. So Once again, you're right. And Don is wrong. <laughs> so here's what it means for everybody listening. You can talk about the external problem that your company solves to your customers, but what you actually really need to do is communicate how you resolve their internal problem. We know how it feels to be frustrated by old pipes and to be afraid that you're going to have to replace them. Absolutely. You've just identified a frustration, a feeling that your customer has that is motivating them to call you. Absolutely. And instead of saying, hey, do you need to replace your pipes? Or, hey, we got a sale on pipe replacement therapy <laughs> treatments, whatever. You actually aim it toward the resolution of the actual thing they're trying to resolve. And it's the frustration that the external problem is causing. That's right. So basically, you're saying put feeling language the resolution yes. of feeling Tap language into, into some heart. of our marketing. Tap into Open your heart. up and let yourself feel what these external problems are making you <laughs> deal with internally. Oh, I think we could take it too far. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> okay, I'm feeling like things got awkward, so now I'm going to wrap up this segment. <laughs> Go back to business talk. Numbers, numbers, algorithms. <laughs> Kula, thank you so much for busting yet another myth. I'm glad to be taking JJ's musters. spot. <laughs> you hear that, JJ? The vultures are circling. Your job <laughs> is not secure. <laughs> All right. Well, if you want to know more about understanding the difference in your customers, external, internal, and even there's a third one, philosophical problem, and even a fourth one, creating a villain that your brand actually fights on behalf of your customers, come to a live story brand marketing workshop. We've got one in November. Register today. Go to storybrand.com. Dot com and we will see you there. How does vulnerability play into this? Because I have mixed feelings about it. I just heard Brene Brown. She released a book, and she was here in Nashville. 2,000 tickets to hear her speak. I think it was 40 bucks a ticket. Sold out in five minutes or so. And I walk into the room. I kid you not, 2,000 seats. I am one of 20 men in the entire room. 
it's 1980 women and me. <laughs> Which if I were single, it'd have been great. But the pheromones I'm taking... in there must have been like static electricity in the air. <laughs> like, and I'm kind of going, okay. And her talk, by the way, should be heard by every human being on the planet. It was about our inability to think in a nuanced way and how it's dividing us. It was just a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful talk. Every man and woman, especially every leader, should hear it. But I kind of wondered, okay, is this because she goes into vulnerability? And then I actually bought an audio book, was listening to it on the way to a family vacation. It's a book called Profit First. Forgive me, I can't remember the author's name. It's a wonderful, wonderful book about bookkeeping, literally about like how you should organize your finances. And in the introduction to a book about bookkeeping, he talks about struggling with depression and you know that sort of thing. And I'm like, what does this have to do with bookkeeping? And I thought I was sort of turned off by it, but within 15 minutes, I'm like, you know, I really like this guy. And then I went, okay, is it because he told me he struggled with depression? I'm not sure. But how much vulnerability and is that a way to connect with the audience and how much should we use that these days? Because everybody's talking about it and everybody's wanting to do it. Well, that brings us to section three on story. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I'm glad I pulled out my HBR Segway. Book. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what is so interesting? I think one of the reasons so many leaders don't incorporate story and storytelling into their talks is because they struggle with vulnerability. So if what I said is true, which it is, of course, because <laughs> I said it, right. that a story has a three-act structure where there's this likable person who encounters roadblocks and is changed by them. Picture a leader who gets up and is like, hey, I'm this likable person. I screwed up at my last company, like big mm. time. So therefore, I'm not going to screw up with you, right? It's part of introducing yourself as a character who is relatable. Yeah, it is. And Can you go too far? Well, no. Story by its nature talks about failure. Story by its nature talks about struggle. And most leaders don't want to get up and say, I'm human. I struggle. I fail. You know, and that's vulnerability. I will follow a leader that fails and talks about it before I'll follow a leader who pretends they've never struggled. Life is hard. All right, so after story, after we use the storytelling principles that you can read about in Nancy's book and a bunch of other places, you get to media. And one of the keys to giving a persuasive talk or being a persuasive presenter is use of media. I've got another stupid story about this. I go to a media conference, Nancy, and I'm thinking these people are tired of multimedia presentations. It's actually a media conference, so I decide to use a white flip chart. And I bombed. <laughs> they were like, did you not hear it was a media? I'm not going to get any more speaking gigs. I promise I'm a really good speaker. These are the, these are the only two times I've ever bombed. I go to a media conference and I use a flip chart. I'm literally like with a black pen. And Simon Sinek did it. I mean, you, well, he's you, Simon I, Sinek. He can do what he wants because he starts with why. Nothing else matters. But it was when Twitter was new and it was just mean. And so I literally I go back to my hotel room just reading hateful comments about me. Anyway, to your point, you should know your media and you should choose good media, right? Right. And it doesn't necessarily mean slides. It could mean a prop. It could mean the physicality of what you're doing. Sometimes you should not have slides. Maybe you need the room to be kind of dark. Maybe you should present from a cold basement. You know, it just depends. So media, you're not just talking about PowerPoint presentations or whatever. You're talking about lighting in the room. Yeah, and it could Music. be, yeah, what's the atmosphere when you walk in? You know, if you're about to do a layoff, you probably shouldn't have band marches playing and right. stuff like that. But it's just to think through all the different kinds of media that you may need. We did a talk for this kind of a famous weight loss guy, and he was amazing, but he was so beautiful, and he was very handsome. I couldn't work on the project 
people that had food addiction had a hard time connecting to him because he'd never had a food addiction. So we talked him into talking about his drug addiction. And it was very hard for him. He'd never wow. talked about it. And we didn't have him have any media. Instead, we did it all with lighting. And it went through the 24-hour light cycle of the day. So by the time he was at the darkest part of the soul, the whole room was black. It was so powerful. Wow. And it wasn't slides. It wasn't anything. It was all, then it was golden light. Then it was blue light. You know, and you went through the whole As he went through his story of addiction. Exactly. And redemption. Wow. It was really cool. I'm glad he came to you. If he would have come to me, I just said, just hold a donut. You'd Everybody like, will get it. Here's a flip chart. Here's a marker. <laughs> <laughs> here's a donut. Just eat yeah. it while you're talking. Slides. What's the difference between, because I was confused a little bit, between media and slides. Slides is the fifth key to persuasive presentations. Yeah. Slides is the actual visual aid. Like, hmm, should this be a bullet slide? Should this be a conceptual slide? Should this be a data slide? Like it's actual choosing the right kind of type of slide, understanding that a slide should be processed in just three seconds. Like it's a glance media. Um, we came up with that term. They should be able to glance it, process it for three seconds, and then focus back on your verbal stream. So if your slides are really intense and really dense. You recommend going to black, right? Like you recommend yeah. sometimes if you're giving a point, you just go to the next slide and it's black. So nobody's staring at the yep. screen. Or you could hit the B key, it'll turn black, or the W key, it'll turn white, and it'll go away so that people can focus just on you. You've written a whole book on just slides, so that's a whole other category people can dive into. Number six is delivery. Deliver your presentation authentically. Yeah. So we have been coaching now, execs, for a long time. We just finally, it was the third leg of the stool. You have content, slides, and delivery. Those are kind of the three things that you need to kill it. Well, unless you want a flip chart instead of slides, of course. <laughs> but we hadn't really exposed the world to our delivery kind of intellectual property. And empathy is in the middle. And having a sense of purpose and passion is kind of in the core. And then the three things that you need is you need to be empathetic, dynamic, and comfortable. And so getting comfortable with yourself, comfortable with your content. And so it's been working out really, really well how you deliver. Now that's if you do an in-person one. There's also all kinds of you know, tips if you do remote presenting or if you do just audio calls, like an earnings call, how you would do that. So delivery has to do with your vocal and physical dynamics and how comfortable you are and how empathetic you are. When people come see you at your workshop, at some level, can they be one-on-one -on -one with one of your coaches and give a presentation and they'll talk to them about their delivery? Yeah. So we're actually relaunching our digital platform where you can actually book and calendar one-on-one -on -one coaching sessions. But through the services side, we work with, I can't name them all, but it would just be so fun and sexy to do that on your show. But we do bespoke coaching where we'll craft an actual transformation plan. Um, and then my top coaches, they coach not only in the your actually delivery skills, but teaching you how to deliver the content with the right kind of emphasis. So they're a combination of storyteller and speaker coach. Impact is final. The seventh key to being a persuasive presenter. We need to measure and increase our presentation's impact on our audience. And I'm probably guilty like a lot of the audience. Once I can hit a triple, once I get a standing ovation on a talk, I find my brain saying, okay, we don't need to improve on this. It's there. And you would say... <laughs> Or not that it's there. It's like, okay. Killed it. Killed it, right. And I actually brought in my old friend, Mike Pacione, who's one of your facilitators. Oh, I adore him. And I, I know he's amazing. And I said, Mike, I got the standing ovation on a talk I gave in Orlando. Can you watch it? 
And I'm expecting literally for Mike to turn around and say, Don, just, you know, wonderful. Nailed it. Yeah, he just he <laughs> sent me back notes that essentially emasculated me. <laughs> like, why are your hands in your pockets? Why are you pacing? Why would you Why would you be introduced that way? Why didn't you have to give the guy a good answer? I'm like, shut up. I don't want to talk about it. Did you notice the audience? Anyway, are you saying, hey, just keep making it better? Yeah, well, and there's ways to amplify it when you're done. So I do think that you do need to get a coach. Not you, but like everyone should have a coach. Maybe you need a coach, Don. <laughs> Yeah, probably so. <laughs> so yeah, there's a way to increase the impact of your talk. But my measurement, like a lot of people will measure it and say, oh my God, I got 400 tweets after my talk or during my talk. Or I get... Whereas my thing is if the Twitterverse goes dead silent during my talk, I consider that a win. And then it just explodes after because that means they forgot. They forgot. They even were holding a medium in their hand. So what do you do? Like you can have a great talk. You can make JPEGs of your slides. You can have them auto-tweet during the talk. You can have people up there. They could retweet your slides. They could retweet the comments that you made during the talk. It just amplifies and makes it spread quicker. And then it's spreading the messages and the quotes that you wanted to have it spread. So there's like spreading it on, on social media, but then there's also connecting deep with the people in the room, giving them a way to connect to you. You do a great job of that because they can go to your site. They can build relationship with you. They can feel connected with you. So when you're really taking an idea and trying to get it to spread, you could kill it in a talk, but if you don't have the tools there for them to own it and kill it themselves and really grab onto the idea and run with it. Now, that's something Al Gore did very, very well. We helped create all the training materials. He flew yeah, everyone in. Yeah, let other people start doing all it. These yeah, you could get certified and then he let people take the message and run with it. That's a perfect example of how to have a message have impact because you're empowering others to help spread it. You know, I jokingly talked about Mike helping me out. Really, I had to take that talk from 50 minutes to 25 minutes and the advice ultimately came from you was invaluable and cut my talk in half and stopped wasting people's time and the service that you're offering the world is just just incredible. I got to tell you, I'm even more excited about the service you're offering leaders just on how to lead people into and through a narrative. I think your stuff is amazing and I think it applies to, honestly, I just wish you had an office in the West Wing and you could walk over and just acting as their, their personal therapist. I think you would, that's where you need to be. I think your stuff is wonderful, Nancy, and I'm so grateful for you. Well, thank you. Yeah, well, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It was fun. Well, there you go. I mean, I think we can go give speeches now. Yeah. I hope everybody now there, if they give a best man or maid of honor speech, that it will be different. <laughs> <laughs> well, I repeat the challenge. Go and give yeah. a talk somewhere. Practice. Yeah. Yep. Go and give a talk. I mean, even pick a topic, rent the back room at the Sizzler and do a luncheon and say, I really want to talk to you guys about real estate prices in the new economy. Yeah. And just do it. Even as a business move, it's fantastic. Yeah. And maybe, who knows, you might get hooked on it. That could lead to a book. That could lead to you being on Oprah. That could lead to <laughs> Oprah liking you so much she gives you her show because it's not on the air anymore. That could lead to you giving away automobiles to maybe. people. I mean, maybe. Maybe. I think it's quite maybe. realistic. Yeah, maybe. Mm, pessimist JJ. <laughs> JJ the pessimist Peterson. As always. <laughs> Next week. We have a show that I'm going to love yes. and I'm going to geek out on, and it's all about Celebrate Don Miller. 
because Chris McChesney's on the show, and he's the author of Four Disciplines of Execution. Yes. It's the unbelievably intriguing interview about how to get things done, how to yes. do things, to create a formulaic system to, to execute tasks with done. a large organization. And I know everybody in this audience is as, <laughs> as excited as I am. About efficiency, it's a topic effectiveness, that we all care systems. about. That we yeah. all care about. <laughs> it I, actually is pretty amazing. It is. It's an amazing interview. <laughs> yeah. And I love Chris and I love this book. For like two years in a row, it was my favorite business book. Two years in a row. Yeah. And we've all read it on staff. We run the system. He basically has a system that says, you know, look, we all have ideas, we all have visions, we all have, but you don't have a system to organize your staff in such a way that they can execute on tasks. Yep. And if you're not running a execution system, a framework, you're missing out on a ton of money and a ton of opportunity. Yeah. And Chris explains his. The great thing is we've been running four disciplines of execution, the name of his book and the name of his system, for two years. And so he was able to diagnose the problems because we're not running it perfectly. So he was able to diagnose the problems and are running it. Yeah. And I got super excited about even just, <laughs> in fact, you and I had a meeting yesterday yeah, yeah. about how to execute this even better. Yep. So Chris McChesney's our guest next week. I just want to tease the audience with a little bit of this conversation. There's something in your world that if you did it, a whole bunch of other things would go in the right direction. What lives at the intersection of really important and geez, if I'm honest with myself, we are not gonna get this done. Like it requires a special treatment. This is not the wig, the, we call it a wildly important goal. The wig is not this year's version of our goals. It's something that if we applied a special treatment, the four disciplines, it would really change the game around here. So that's next week, JJ. Yep. Everybody's going to be more productive after they give their speech. So the challenge is give your give speech. Give your speech. Be and more then productive. You're going to get so much business, you're going to have to figure out how to be more productive. I think it's a perfect plan. <laughs> All right. Well, music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's new record, Dive Deep, on Spotify or iTunes. And my new book, Building a Story Brand, is out. You can get it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Explains the complete Story Brand seven-part framework. It'll help you clarify your message so customers listen. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. Mm -hmm.